Anyway, we are back. Let's try and focus on some science topics for this entire segment. I was in L.A. talking about the Carrington event with some friends a couple weeks back, which is probably worth your while to look up on the Internet. Apparently in 1859, a man was observing uh, the sun. His name was Carrington, and he observed a really brightening of an area near, uh, near some sunspots. He evidently managed to be an eyewitness to a solar flare of prodigious proportions. And in fact, um, they believe this may have been the, the most profound event of the past half millennium. Because these, uh, these eruptions in the sun's surface do leave certain fingerprints after they arrive at the Earth. Uh, and when this event did arrive at the Earth, um, a couple hours later, it caused a huge surge in electrical power in what were then the brand new telegraph lines spread across the world. Apparently, the aurora borealis was seen on the equator, and even though telegraph operators disconnected the batteries after getting power surges and fires, they were still able to send telegrams by the currents induced in the wires. If such an event happens again, and it's, of course, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, uh, we may see some major problems in our electronics, to put it mildly. Of course, folks are waking up to the fact right now that there's what's called dependency creep. People are depending upon global positioning systems to, uh, you know, to, to orient themselves and get around. This correspondent prefers the good old-fashioned map. But uh, we, we, we might do well as a society not to become too dependent on GPS. The next time there's a Carrington event, we might find that a lot of our satellites are fried. First, one thing seems clear. This is not going to happen in the immediate future. If you go to spaceweather.com, you'll observe the fact that the sunspot activity on the sun has gone down to zero. The sun does go through an 11-year cycle, of course, and sunspots do reach a minimum, but the minimum currently is zero and may stay there for a while. Now, there was a period in the 1600s where sunspots basically disappeared through many solar cycles. This undoubtedly affects the Earth's climate, but scientists are still trying to figure out uh, the hows and whys. Speaking of mysterious connections between uh, the sun and the Earth, I wanted to quote from this article from the Health and Science section of the Week magazine. Scientists have long laughed at astrology's underlying premise that celestial events can influence human emotions and behavior. But a series of new studies has produced evidence that at least one type of astronomical activity, solar flares, may in fact affect human beings. Periodically, the sun erupts with large storms that hurl waves of electromagnetically charged particles into space, altering Earth's own magnetic field. Several recent studies have found a connection between changes in that magnetic field and depression and suicide rates. One study, suicide rates in a Russian city closely match patterns of geomagnetic activity. A South African study found a similar correlation between solar flare-ups and clinical depression. 1994 British study noted that rates of hospital admissions for depression rose by more than 36% just after geomagnetic storms. And here's an item that's news to me. The pineal gland, which regulates melatonin, and the body's circadian rhythms, is known to be sensitive to magnetic fields. At least that's what psychiatrist Kelly Posner told New Scientist magazine. 
Well, you know, this isn't entirely surprising. We do know the brains of other creatures certainly do respond to magnetic fields. That probably explains animal migrations to no small degree. Birds, sea turtles, and, you know, other animals migrate based on magnetic fields, which they apparently can sense using little little crystals of magnetite or, or lodestone, which are, which are biologically secreted. It's fascinating stuff. Of course, I guess if we're having uh, we're having no sunspot activity right now, we all ought to be feeling just a little bit better. All right, I definitely want to talk about water, but before we do that, let's let's review some some items we've talked about in past shows. Have some follow up with our with our talk with uh, Tom Bleese uh, a couple months back about the Integral Fast Reactor. Um, noticing a lot of stories emerging about the <laughs> heretofore unappreciated amount of environmental damage and change that would arise from using so-called green technologies like solar and wind. And it seems agreed that this smart grid, uh, a better grid across the nation would be, would be needed to more efficiently um, spread power around. But all these things have a, have a cost. You have to devote huge acreages to these, uh, these energy-collecting farms. And your transmission lines have to march across the countryside which is not necessarily a pleasing prospect. But there was a recent article in the Sacramento Bee by Ed Fletcher talking about how going green is hitting rural resistance. In fact, the article notes that some residents are organizing opposition to proposals to erect additional towers and string still more high-voltage lines to carry power from future solar and wind farms to urban customers. It seems to me this is something we haven't thought out well enough, uh, the, the hidden environmental costs of you know, so-called green technologies. I'm still sitting on, on this article. It was in Mental Floss a couple of weeks back, about the Rand, a couple months back, about the Rand Corporation. Uh, this basically a, this think tank down in Santa Monica was influential in establishing U.S. policy for military attacks and nuclear catastrophes, but it also has been directly responsible for the technology that made the internet possible, packet switching. This did get mentioned in the book we talked about on last week's show, Big Ideas, from Alex Hutchinson. But uh, Daniel Ellsberg famously worked for the Rand Corporation in the 1960s, and he's promised to come on this show when he's done working on his new book. Uh, We heard that about six months ago. He was talking about June. June's around the corner, so we hope that sometime this summer we'll have Daniel Ellsberg on the program to talk about the Rand Corporation. And as follow-up on our chat with Mary Roach about her book, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, we have the following item. Stuart Brody, a psychologist at the University of Paisley, UK, compared the impact of different sexual activities on blood pressure when a person later experiences acute stress. His conclusion, well, if you've got, say, some public speaking to do, To keep stress at bay, you need to have some sex beforehand, but it needs to be penetrative sex. Because apparently this magic vanishes if you pursue other forms of sexual gratification. Apparently this uh, particular sexologic uh, uh, evaluation took a look at penile vaginal intercourse, PVI, versus masturbation or partnered sexual activity which excluded intercourse. And the results showed that PVI was the winner. People who engaged in it were the least stressed, and their blood pressure returned to normal faster than those who'd only had the other two types of activity. 
So there you have it. You know, if your partner comes to you and says, "Hun, I've got this big presentation tomorrow. Well, we say, do what you can to de-stress the situation. All right, let's, uh, let's talk very, very briefly about the flu. There is a fear that even though it's not turning out to be too bad, it's going to move into the southern hemisphere and bounce back uh, in the fall in the northern hemisphere. Fear of pandemic remains, but uh, so far, so good. We would maybe want to refer again to that study they did at the Carnegie Mellon uh, University uh, uh, last year where they exposed 153 people to cold viruses and the way to see if they got sick. Well, if they got seven hours of quality sleep, they were more resistive to the virus. Sleep is also proving uh, to be a good thing uh, for children. University of Montreal showed that a quarter of children who slept less than 10 hours a night were overweight by age six, compared to only 15% who slept a full 10 hours and only 10% who slept 11 hours. Apparently, kids need a lot of sleep, and if they don't get it, they tend toward obesity. Kind of an, an odd finding, but one that should be followed up on. There's a New York Times article last December about, uh, about arrogant doctors and how that uh, arrogant, obnoxious doctors can cause problems. Oh, gee, you think? They quoted Medical Board of California Deputy Laura Sweet, who noted that when a, a case of a resident doctor who failed to inform the attending physician of some problems and he was afraid to contact the attending because he was notorious for yelling and ridiculing the residents. And yeah, there are jerks out there, believe me. But uh, for my money, every bit as big a problem in the whole system is the fact that when you're just sleep-deprived, you're a bit wacky. I mean, your brain just isn't focused like it needs to be. This, this, should, this should not come as a surprise to anyone, should it? And final item on sleep, uh, studies of the French show that they seem to be getting more sleep than other nations, which I think may have something to do with the French paradox, the fact that they eat uh, rich, fatty foods and don't seem to have all the diseases we associate in, uh, in America with, with those foodstuffs. Seems quite possible to me that uh, the real story is that if you eat fatty foods and don't sleep enough, that's a, it's a combination effect that uh, is at the root of the problem. His friends seem to be doing a lot of things right these days. All right, let's talk water in California. Uh, Dan Bacher's talked a lot about uh, salmon and the fisheries, and he will be, like I say, talking to us soon. But I want to refer to the Matt Weiser article in the B from a few days ago, noting that the herring population in San Francisco Bay is at its lowest level in 30 years. And this drop may lead to a restricted commercial catch later this year. Rather startling graph to accompany the article showed the estimated spawning biomass uh, of, of herring, which appears to be at a level of almost 150,000 tons a few years ago. Currently, it's at less than 5,000 tons. Interesting, too, in the article that uh, most of our catch goes to Japan, where it demands a higher price than here in the U.S. Matt also had an article in, uh, in last month's B, the April 9th um, uh, ish edition, noting that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, announced that the longfin smelt a fish native to the Delta, does not warrant Endangered Species Act protection. I don't know. Herring's in trouble. Smelt's in trouble. We know salmon's in trouble. Um, this needs to be looked at. Seems clear that a lot of people want to blame ocean conditions and, I don't know, 
Solar flares, I think, for the decline in fishing when it seems clear that uh, we're taking too much water out of the delta. So let's talk about that. Uh, article in the B, reprinted uh, from the Contra Costa Times by Mike Tauher, notes that farmers have filed a lawsuit to block plans to build an aqueduct to divert Sacramento River water around the delta. In fact, we are trying to track down some farmers in the Delta who uh, last week blocked people from coming on the land to, uh, to take a look around because they're surveying the scene preparatory to, you know, going ahead with that canal, which the governor's office seems to think it's going to go ahead and do without getting any voter approval or going through the legislature. It's a kind of methodology that was pursued in, in Austria and other Central European nations back in the 30s but an approach I don't really think we should imitate here in contemporary America. And I was somewhat disturbed to see a write-up in UC Davis Magazine about um, some scientists who are apparently um, getting on board this water grab. Not going to name names at present until I find out more about where they really stand on all this. But they were one of them was quoted as saying uh, that the report, referring to the Public Policy Institute of California's 2008 report, comparing futures for the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, concluded that, quote, building a peripheral canal to carry water around the Delta is the most promising way, unquote, to both revive the threatened ecosystem and ensure a reliable water supply for the state. Well, no, let me me just clarify that. What it will do is ensure a reliable water supply for Southern California. Reviving a threatened ecosystem by removing more of the resource is, um, is somewhat illogical. You don't uh, medically treat people with anemia by applying leeches to remove blood. One of these uh, professors was noted as saying, We recommend building it only in the context of trying to meet a policy objective, co-equal value of water supply and ecosystem, and we just can't see how you're going to do it any other way. Which is curious because we don't see how you're going to do it this way. Again, not the water supply part. That, that much is clear. It's the, when you start talking eco. But anyway, let, let's take a descent into some real villainy. <laughs> Referring to the San Francisco Chronicle's April 12th edition of their Insight section, which is opinion editorials and more. I want to quote from an article by Ellen Hannock and Jay Lund titled, Replumb the State to Save the Fish and Us. To quote from the article, Something must be done about the failing Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta. Continuing to supply the Bay Area and other water users directly from the Delta is the worst long-term strategy for native species and a poor strategy for California's economy. The most promising long-term strategy for native fishes alone is to end water exports entirely at a still greater water supply and economic cost. Okay, so far so good. Leaving the water where it is would improve things for the fish. Next paragraph. The most promising strategy to restore the Delta's native fishes and ensure a reliable water supply for 22 million Californians is to build a suitable peripheral canal with substantial additional habitat investments. They go on. Today we know that a well-managed peripheral canal would be much better for the fish than the current system. A peripheral canal would allow fresher Sacramento River water to be channeled to the pumps, improving water quality for the cities and farms, and reducing the risks of water outages from earthquakes and floods. 
they seem to be a little vague on the details of how once you've taken that fresh water and diverted it around the delta, the delta mysteriously improves. But they go on. It also would allow the return to a more natural flow of water within the delta. Sending fresh water to the pumps has reduced the natural variability of water flow and water quality, creating better conditions for harmful invasive species. The large pumps also have distorted the direction of flows, disturbing the food web, putting fish in the wrong places, and trapping some fish in the pumps. This, ladies and gentlemen, is known as double talk. Although they are right about trapping some fish in the pumps, the pumps in the delta are usually referred to as fish grinders. Anyway, the article goes on to blah, 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 explain how this is, you know, this is not going to be a water grab, or people need to be assured anyway this won't be a water grab. Which I guess is the equivalent of like saying, hey, your shoe's untied as you lift the guy's wallet. But I, I know, I'm, I'm going on a bit about this article because I just, my, my jaw drops when I read it. They note near the end, to make this work, cities and farms would probably need to commit to reducing water use from the delta, at least until fish populations recover. To translate this into English, to make this work, once we ship all this fresh water around the delta, well, people are just going to have to just, you know, take fewer deliveries. Except no one's talking about this very much. Have you heard any... Any Southern California real estate developers coming forward to say, you know what, we've been just making too much money down here. We're going to have to basically stop this and just stop taking water from the north. If you've heard anybody say that, please, please direct us to where we can, we can find out more about it because, you know, we, we've heard nothing of the kind. Anyway, the co-author of this in, in the Chronicle was, uh, was Jay Lund, Ray B. Crone, Professor of Environmental Engineering and co-director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. Dr. Lund would like to write us, we will read his response uh, on the air. You know, Mark Reisner, when he wrote about California water, raised the possibility, um, before his untimely death, that an earthquake in the Bay Area on the Hayward Fault could cause enough destruction in the Delta to create saltwater intrusion, would break down the barriers of a lot of islands, etc. And I think that the real reason behind this peripheral canal is that looking to that possibility in the future, they want to go upstream to divert the water from there to the San Joaquin Valley and Los Angeles. We find ourselves much more approving of another article from that same section in the Insight portion of the Chronicle, which is written by Representative George Miller, Democrat of Martinez, and uh, also uh, State Senator Lois Wolk. Democrat from Davis, who's chair of the Senate Select Committee on Delta Stewardship and Sustainability. She's also a member of the, the Delta Protection Commission. To quote from their article, we must realize there are no silver bullets that will solve all of, all of California's water woes. Suspending the Federal Endangered Species Act certainly won't do it, nor will sprinting to commit billions of taxpayer dollars to dig a water supply ditch the size of the Panama Canal around the Delta. Our years in California water policy have taught us that you've got to put the right policies in place before you decide to build expensive and divisive water infrastructure. Yet, the State Department of Water Resources is now spending more than $1.1 billion on canal and water project planning. Off-budget, with no legislative oversight or public accountability. While Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's cabinet has asserted that the state could break ground on a canal before the governor's term expires. 
There are better answers, both short and long term, that have a greater chance to bring back our fisheries, deliver reliable clean water, and bolster, not threaten, the Delta region, including its $35 billion economy with more than 200,000 jobs. These solutions include the region's communities as partners, not adversaries. Immediately, we should expand proven cost-effective water supply strategies such as conservation, recycling, groundwater cleanup, desalination, enhanced coordination between reservoirs, and regional water supply projects in Southern California and the Bay Area. We propose a Delta Stewardship Council, which will include representatives from all different perspectives, all bound by a legal obligation to restore and protect the Delta ecosystem. This would help resolve the confusion of 200 federal, state, and local agencies bumping into one another, often at cross-purposes, while decision-makers' primary objectives are to outside interests with no responsibility for this crucial estuary's survival. Bravo to George Miller and Lois Walk. Anyway, we're not going to let this topic go. We're also going to take a look at some of the greenwashing that appears to be going on with some of these so-called environmental groups that are backing up this Delta Canal. And we're going to take a look at a land down under. Apparently, Australia's in about its 15th year of drought, something like that. And what's happening to the Murray-Darling River Basin? Uh, well, it has some lessons for us here in California. Article in The Economist notes that climate change and Australia's worst drought in a century are partly to blame for the decline of the Murray-Darling, but the river system that covers two-thirds of Australia's irrigated farming land is also suffering from decades of overuse. This is much the case here in California. We have too many people for our water supply. With global warming and its accompanying climate change, they expect to see less water in California, not more. In fact, as Mark Reisner pointed out in, um, in his book, Cadillac Desert, it turns out the estimates that have been based on California water supplies, uh, we're looking at the last century, which it turns out was, I think, the third wettest century out of the past, like, but 10,000 years, something like that. Might have been 5,000 years, but it was over a long haul. So as California, like the rest of the world, faces a huge economic crisis, it's time to look at urban sprawl. In fact, we could probably do a couple whole shows on this topic. Looking at Matt Weiser's article in the B from the 23rd of April talking about how wastewater ammonia appears to also be adding to the Delta's woes. I was somewhat stunned to read the article and note that although you can remove uh, ammonia from sewage, it's not being done because we're only doing uh, what's called secondary sewage treatment systems, not tertiary. So rather than spend $1.1 billion to build a big ditch the size of the Panama Canal around the Delta, why don't we spend a little dough and take the ammonia out of the water? That seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Anyway, let's, uh, let's knock off talking about water. We'll talk about it a little bit more on next week's show. We're overdue for a break. Let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. <laughs> 